morning that Jesus has conquered the grave. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, making it possible for us to live in a relationship with you. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. And we praise you this morning for Jesus conquering the grave. Thank you that we can now worship you and live in relationship with you. Meet with us now, we pray, as we speak, as we look at your word, as we study it together. Help us to learn from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was asked to visit somebody this week who was dying of cancer. In fact, they weren't expected to survive uh, through the night. And I visited the person who was dying and saw the terrible disease that cancer is. In so many cases, cancer can't even be treated. And even when it can be treated, the treatment is often brutal and really hard. Eight years ago, I had to watch as my own brother died of a brain tumor. And I had to watch as the cancer destroyed his life. Cancer is terrible. Cancer is awful. But can you imagine, just imagine for a moment, if somebody this week announced on the news that there was a cure for all cancers. If every single cancer could be cured, there was a magic pill, a magic treatment that would cure all sorts of cancers. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? That would be such amazing news. That would be such fantastic news to know that there was a cure for something that is so brutal and so terrible. It would be amazing, but as with all cures, you'd have to follow the treatment exactly. It would be no good if this cure for cancer was found, but then people started changing the treatment or adding to the treatment or doing things differently, not following the uh, guidelines, the directions of the medical professionals. It would be like me with my distinctly unimpressive C grade in GCSE biology, least expect a woo there, with my fantastic C grade in biology suddenly discovering or or deciding that I know better than the professors who've designed this wonderful medicine and I'm going to change it and I'm going to add to it and I'm going to do things differently. Why would I do that? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? If If there's a treatment, then we need to stick to the cure. If somebody really smart has designed a treatment to to, uh, de- to defeat a drug, then we need to stick to that treatment because they know what they're doing and, and we don't. And if we, if we tamper with it, if we change it, if we add to it, then we run the real risk, actually, of causing the treatment not to work. The Bible says that every human being is infected with something far more serious than cancer. As terrible as cancer is, something much more serious than cancer infects every single human being on this planet. And it's something that is called, and the Bible calls it sin. Sin affects everyone. Every single person in this room, every single person in this world, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how bad they are, the Bible says every single person is a sinner. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory, God's perfect standard. And sin ruins everything. Sin ruins lives. It ruins marriages. It ruins uh, people's lives. It ruins their, it just ruins everything. It ruins communities. It ruins nations. But more importantly than the damage that sin does on a day-to-day basis in our lives, more importantly that is that sin separates us from God. And not only in this life, but it separates us for all eternity. We, the Bible says that man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. No second chances, no second chances to come around and do it all again. After that, we face judgment. And sin, if it's not dealt with, will separate us from God for all eternity. What is sin? Well, sin is when we live our way instead of living God's way. It's when we live without reference to God. It's when we uh, live the way that we want to live rather than the way that God wants us to live. For instance, as in the Ten Commandments that God has given to us as, as well as other things that God asks us to do. 
It's when we don't do the things that we should do, and it's when we uh, do the things that we shouldn't do. And the problem is with sin is that it separates us from God. And because God is utterly, utterly holy, so perfect, so holy, he cannot tolerate sin in any shape or form in his presence. And so we are separated from God. And God, therefore, has to punish our sin. And so according to the Bible, we find ourselves with this deep problem, a problem that we are unable to do anything about. And we're facing not only separation from God, but also eternal punishment for the wrong things that we do for our sins. We have the biggest problem, this phenomenal problem. But the Bible says that God wants to save us from that problem. God wants to give us an amazing cure for this deepest of all problems. The Bible says that God wants to save us from eternal separation from himself and save us from eternal punishment. We've got this massive problem, the most serious illness of all, sin. And its its outcome is the worst that we could possibly imagine. But God has provided a solution. Isn't that fantastic? God hasn't left us in this predicament. God has provided a solution. He sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, come, God come as a human being into this world, not only to show us how to live, not just to heal and teach, but ultimately and chiefly to die there on the cross in our place as our substitute. And Jesus there on the cross, the Bible said, became our our sins. God took the sins of us and he placed them on Jesus and Jesus willingly took them on himself even though he was sinless and perfect. Jesus took our sins, your sins, my sins, all our screw-ups, all our foul-ups, all those mess-ups in our lives and Jesus then bore the wrath of a holy God. Not just in the physical suffering, that was horrendous, but in a spiritual separation from God for three hours of darkness where God the Father poured out his wrath, the wrath that we should have faced for our sins on Jesus there on the cross so that our sins having been dealt with if we confess that we are sinners that we need God's salvation that we need God to save us that we need God to cure our problem if we do that if we confess our sins if we turn away from our sins and acknowledge that I need Jesus to save me I am helpless and hopeless and utterly helpless without Jesus and if I look in faith to Jesus to what he did there on the cross that he dealt with my sin, that he has made it possible for me to come back to God and have a relationship with God. If I look in faith, trusting in what he's done, turning away from my sin and turning to Jesus, then I can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. We can have a relationship with God that lasts forever. And our sins are dealt with once and for all. And God considers us from that moment on to be as holy and as perfect as Jesus so that we can be with God, so that when we die, we will go to be with him forever. That is fantastic news, isn't it? We can and we will be saved, saved from eternal separation and punishment when we trust in Jesus. The Bible says this, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is by grace that you've been saved, if you've been saved, if you've put your trust in Jesus. God saves us when we put our faith in Jesus and it's simply through God's grace. Grace simply means somebody treating somebody in a way they don't deserve to be treated. It's giving somebody something that they haven't earned, something they have no right to. It's God saving us from our sins, from the punishment for our sins, even though we don't deserve it. And so when we accept that we're utterly hopeless and helpless without Jesus and turn in faith to him, God saves us and he gives us forgiveness and he gives us eternal life. And that is fantastic. And that is the good news. That's the message of Christianity. That is the gospel, what we call the good news of Jesus, that God can save us, that he wants to save us, that he wants to forgive us and give us eternal life if we turn from our sins and if we turn in faith to Jesus. 
we can be what the Bible calls saved. And a little definition is going to be up there on, your, on the screen for you. There's an outline on your seat on the back of the notices, and there's things for you to fill in there. And all the Bible verses, or most of the ones that we're looking at today, are there for you. And you can take that home if you want to after the service. To be what the Bible calls saved, it's when we turn from our sins, when we turn in faith to Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him, when he becomes Lord of our lives. When we turn in faith to Jesus and surrender to him, then we are saved. It's what the Bible calls salvation. We've sung about it this morning. We're saved. God's salvation. Being saved from his wrath, being saved from what we deserve, being saved because of God's grace, because of God treating us, giving us what we don't deserve, the forgiveness that is possible through Jesus. The problem is our sin. The end result is our separation and, and eternal punishment. The cure is turning away from sin and turning in faith to Jesus and looking in faith to what Jesus did. God become man, dying for us there on the cross. It's a massive thing to do. To turn from our sin and to turn in faith to Jesus is a huge step to take. But it's so, so simple. It's a massive step, but it's so incredibly simple. The good news, what the Bible calls the gospel, is so simple. But you know, People, and, and this is all of us, we don't like the simplicity of the good news. Some people reject the fact that they're sinners. They don't like the idea of being labeled as a sinner or they reject the concept of God altogether. They just want to live in complete uh, denial of the existence of God. Most people I talk to actually do believe in a God. I think in the last census in the UK, something like 60-70% of people said they, they believed in a God. So most people do believe in God of some kind. What people struggle to do, and this is where the, the 70% only becomes about 4 or 5% of people who are living in a genuine relationship with God through Jesus day by day. The gap in there is because people like the idea of God, but they struggle with the idea that they are utterly helpless and hopeless without God. As humans, we're proud, and we love to think that I can, I can earn my way to heaven. I can I can do good things that will make God love me. I can do good things that will earn my way to heaven. I can, I can solve this problem of the wrong stuff in my life by going to church or by, or by doing good things, by giving to charity, whatever it might be. God's given us a cure for sin, but we want to add to the cure. We like to, to, to tamper with the cure. We think the cure that God has given isn't sufficient. And so it's just innate within us. We have this pride within us that thinks, well, God... The person who's designed this cure doesn't really know what he's doing. And just like a, you know, a top professor designs a cure for, a, for a, an illness and then me with my stupid GCSE in biology thinks, you know, I know better than that guy and I'm going to redesign this drug or I'm going to add something to this drug. And we do that because of our pride. We think that we know better than God or that we need to add something to what God has already done for us. Now we're working our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament of the Bible. The book of Acts is the record, it's the account of how the early church spread the good news about Jesus right across the world. And it covers a period of about 20 to 30 years after Jesus died, rose from the dead and went back to heaven. And today we're going to look at Acts 15 verses 1 to 35. And this passage is all about this issue. Whether we can be saved by something we do or whether it's simply by turning away from our sins and placing our faith in Jesus. That is the crux of this chapter. A massive big uh, discussion takes place, a big argument. Can we be saved? Can we get to God? Can we get to heaven by doing good things? Or is it solely and utterly and simply by trusting in Jesus? And that's the real issue in this chapter. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me. If you haven't, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it this morning. 
So the setting here is that Paul and Barnabas, who were two of the great leaders of the early church, this is about 16 years after Jesus had risen from the dead and gone back to heaven, and they're spreading the good news about Jesus all over the uh, Roman Empire. Specifically, they'd been working in what is modern-day Turkey, and they'd preached the, the good news. Hundreds, thousands of people had become Christians. Churches had been started in, in what is modern-day Turkey, and they'd come back to Antioch, which is their kind of home base. And then something happens. Some, some, some men come down from Jerusalem and start teaching things that are not right. And so in verse 1, it says this of chapter 15 of Acts. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel, the good news, and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke they, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, Peter has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following, requ the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they, delivered the church to get, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. 
Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they went they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached about the Lord. People like Paul and Barnabas, particularly them, have been traveling all over the Roman Empire, especially what is now modern-day Turkey, been preaching the good news about Jesus, preaching repentance, turning away from our sins, and forgiveness of sins by turning in faith to Jesus, trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross, and loads of people had been responding to the simple message and they were trusting in Jesus and they were being saved. Saved from their sins, saved from eternal punishment and were being brought into relationship with God. But the problem was that most of these people weren't Jewish. They were non-Jews. They were what we call Gentiles, what the Bible calls Gentiles. And some of the people back in Jerusalem who were Christians, they trusted in Jesus but were ethnically, racially Jewish, they were struggling with this. They were struggling with the idea that Gentiles could become Christians. So in verse 1, we read this, and it'll be up there on the screen for you. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. These Jewish men had believed in Jesus. They were part of the church in Jerusalem, and they wanted the Gentiles up in Antioch, who had also believed in Jesus, not only to put their faith in Jesus, but then to obey the Jewish law. And the Jewish law was a whole package of rules and regulations that God had given to the Jews about 1,400 years earlier through Moses, who was the leader of the Jewish people. And part of the Jewish law, a physical outward sign that you were living under the Jewish law if you were a man, was to be circumcised. So a boy was circumcised on the eighth day. And if you converted to Judaism, you had to be circumcised. And that was a sign that not only were you now circumcised, obviously, but that was a sign that you were submitting and you were going to obey the whole of the Jewish law. And... These Jews from the church in, in Jerusalem were trying to teach these new Gentile Christians in Antioch that not only did they have to trust in Jesus, but in addition to that, they had to be circumcised and obey the Jewish law. And that was totally and completely contrary to what was true and to what the church had been teaching for the last 16 years since the church had begun as Jesus had gone back to heaven. So in verse 2 we read, and it's up there on the screen for you, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The apostles were the early, the kind of chief leaders of the early church. And so Paul and Barnabas, men who were Jews, but had been saved by trusting in Jesus alone, and they'd seen many other people saved, especially Gentiles, saved just by trusting in Jesus, they had this problem, they had this task of going up to Jerusalem and making sure once and for all that this wrong teaching about having to do other things in addition to trusting in Jesus was dealt with and sorted out. And so they went up to Jerusalem where the church had, been, had begun 16, 17 years earlier. They met with the apostles, they met with the church elders, and in fact the whole church. But then these men who were trying to get these Gentile Christians to be circumcised, they, they tried to intervene in the proceedings. You can imagine a big gathering of all the church run by the, the elders and the apostles, and then these guys stand up and start shouting out, and, it looks, and, and look at verse 5, it says this, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. What they were saying was that trusting in Jesus, trusting in what he'd done on the cross, in taking the punishment for our sins, making it possible for us to be right with God, that that wasn't enough. Gentiles who were trusted in Jesus also had to be circumcised if they were men, and they had to obey the whole Jewish law. They could only be saved 
only be saved from their sins, go to heaven, if they trusted in Jesus and obeyed the Jewish law. And the outward way of showing that was to be circumcised. So in verse 6, we read this. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and questioned and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter, who was one of the apostles, he was one of the 12 disciples who had followed Jesus, he stood up and he reminded them that God had already spoken and shown through Peter that the, that, that the Gentiles could be saved, that they didn't need to obey the Jewish law. They just needed to trust in Jesus. In fact, God had shown that Jews no longer needed to obey the Jewish law. Peter had been told by God to go to Cornelius. You can read about this in Acts 10. Been told to go to Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, a Gentile, and to share the good news about Jesus with him. And as he did so, Cornelius and all the people in his household, as they listened, they all trusted in Jesus. They asked Jesus to forgive them. They put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they were saved. And to demonstrate that God had accepted them and that they had genuinely been saved, God sent his Holy Spirit to live in their lives, and there was a miraculous demonstration of that as they began to praise God in other languages, languages they hadn't learned, so that the people stood watching, that the Jewish Christians stood watching, could see God really had saved these people. They hadn't added the law to it. They had just trusted in Jesus, and God had sent, their Holy, sent his Holy Spirit to them as a miraculous sign to show Peter and the rest of the church that they really had been saved, that these Gentiles had been saved solely through their faith in Jesus. So Peter says in verse 8, it's up on the screen for you, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter and the other Jewish Christians had placed their faith in Jesus and had received God's Holy Spirit. God had come to live in their lives, just as he does in everyone's life who trust in Jesus. And exactly the same thing had happened to these Gentiles. They'd placed their faith in Jesus, and this meant that God was able to forgive their sins and to declare them as being holy and perfect. Their hearts were purified by faith. God knew their hearts. He knew that they turned away from their sins, that they turned in faith to Jesus, and so God was able to give his Holy Spirit to them, just as he does to all who trust in Jesus today. So in verse 10, if you look at the verse, Peter says this, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke, a weight, that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear. Why would they try to get the Gentile Christians to be circumcised and obey the whole Jewish law, or any of the Jewish law, when obeying the Jewish law couldn't save them? It hadn't been able to save the Jews, and it couldn't save the Gentiles. In fact, doing this, Peter says, was testing God. It was actually trying to test God. In other words, they were saying that what God had said and what God had done by saving through faith alone and then proving that by giving his Holy Spirit to these people, they were actually saying that they knew better than God, that God's cure wasn't right, that God's cure wasn't good enough, that they knew better than God knew. They were testing God. God had said a person was simply saved by putting their faith in Jesus, but they were effectively saying, no, God's got it wrong. God doesn't know as well as we do. We know that, yes, we need to put our faith in Jesus, but then we need to add the Jewish law. And so Peter, who was by this time getting pretty passionate, says this, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter and his fellow Jews had been saved by God's grace, by God giving the free gift of salvation solely through the faith in Jesus. And these Gentiles, Peter says, have been saved in exactly the same way. There's no difference. We've not obeyed the law, they've not obeyed the law. It's solely by trusting in Jesus. 
To say that a person had to obey any kind of rules and regulations in order to be saved was totally wrong. No one can be saved by doing that because the problem is we've got sin in our lives and so none of us are able to keep God's perfect laws. The law is good. The Bible says that the law that God gave to Moses for the people of Israel was good. It was perfect. But because we've got a problem in our lives, sin, we're unable to keep God's perfect law. So we need someone else to come who was able to keep all God's laws, Jesus. And that perfect sacrifice then to die in our place instead of us. And so when the people had listened to Paul and Barnabas recounting that that many Gentiles had been saved right through Turkey and that God had performed miraculous signs to prove that their salvation was genuine, James, who was one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem, stood up and he said, you know what, actually the Old Testament of the Bible, which at this point was all there was of the Bible, the Old Testament, he says, look, the Old Testament says exactly the same thing and it proves this is true. He stood up and he said, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And the prophet, this is going back into the Old Testament, to Amos, the book of Amos, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. Basically what he was saying was God had prophesied hundreds of years earlier that he would restore King David's royal house And he would do that through Jesus. Jesus who, as to his human ancestry, was the direct descendant of King David. Jesus was God become man. And the human ancestry, the human personality he took on was that of the direct descendant of King David. So that Jesus was the king. He was the king of kings. The rightful uh, inheritor of the throne of Israel. And as king of kings, he would save not just Jews, but as Amos points to here, he would save Gentiles as well through their faith in him. So this great meeting of church elders and apostles strongly and passionately rejected the concept that to be saved, a person has to do certain things, to obey rules or to do good works, such as the Jewish law. So write this down. This is really so foundational to the Christian faith, that we are saved by God's grace through faith and not by any good things that we do. We are saved. We get saved from our sins, from eternal punishment and separation from God, solely by turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus, not by any good things that we do. It's not saying that we shouldn't do good things. Of course we should. If we love God, then we want to do good things. But obeying any laws or rules or regulations or, or, or rituals, none of these things will save us. Only faith in Jesus will save us. And throughout, throughout history, people have struggled with this concept because we all like to think that we're capable of doing enough to get ourselves to heaven. If, if I just live a good life, if I do good things, then maybe God will, will love me enough and will accept me. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that it's only when we realize how utterly sinful we are, how utterly helpless and hopeless we are, that we then instead turn to Jesus and put our faith in him to save us. So it's vital that we don't add anything to this concept, to this doctrine, this teaching of salvation by grace through faith. If God has revealed the cure for sin, which is repentance and faith in Jesus, then the cure will only work if we stick to it. If we think that we have to add to simple faith in Jesus, then we won't be saved because salvation of trusting in Jesus plus doing stuff is not salvation at all because then we're not really trusting in Jesus. We're putting half of our trust and faith in what we do. If we think we'll be saved by doing things, then we're ignoring the instructions that God has given us and we're trying to do things our way and that's a really dangerous thing to do. It's what Peter calls testing God, going against what God has, talk, has called us to do. And Peter and James utterly rejected this concept. 
They saw it as testing God, basically saying that God had got it wrong. Look at the verse. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Another way of translating that is tempt God. In other words, you're kind of putting yourself in a very dangerous position. If we go against what God is teaching, then God may say enough and deal with us. Peter uses really strong language here, testing God, tempting God. He's saying in the strongest terms that, he, that we are to reject the idea of being saved through doing things, through doing good works, in this instance, the Jewish law. And when James wrote this letter that we read about, he, he writes this letter to the Gentile churches. He says this, We've heard that some, that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what was said. James is rejecting utterly. He's distancing himself. He's saying, what these guys said and did and, and are doing is wrong. It's not biblical. It's not right. It's not the way to be, to be saved. The men who were teaching salvation through faith plus obedience to the Jewish law were not authorized by them. They were wrong and they were causing real trouble by their teaching. Imagine if you take a, a pill which you've been told is a cure for something and then someone else comes along and says, actually, that won't do. You need to add this to it. Then you'd be a little bit disturbed, wouldn't you? And that's what was happening. These people are trusted in Jesus and then somebody else is coming along and saying, but that's not good enough. You need to add some other stuff to trusting in Jesus. And we need to have a similar attitude today, a similar intolerance. We live in a society which says we need to be tolerant of all people. We need to love everybody and be tolerant. Well, we need to love everybody, but we mustn't be tolerant of everything. The Bible says that we need to have a real intolerance of anything that teaches different on this instance anything that teaches that we need to add to simple faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. It's not a secondary issue. There's, there's stuff in the Bible that we can, we can have differences about. In different churches have different styles of, of structure of church leadership or uh, the role of women or the miraculous gifts. And, and these are things that we can agree to disagree on. They're secondary issues. They don't affect how we get to heaven. It's not about who Jesus is or how we get to heaven. This is one of the biggest issues of all for all the Christian. If a person is teaching that in addition to trusting in Jesus, that we have to do things to get right with God, then we need to reject what they're saying in the strongest of terms, even if that makes us very unpolitically correct. Because it's an attack not just on what we believe, not just on what we're saying, but it's actually an attack on God. Peter says here, you're tempting God, you're testing God. It's an attack on God. It's actually an attack on what Jesus did. It's saying, Jesus, what you did on the cross isn't sufficient. What you've done isn't enough. I need to add something to that. And the, the utter pride of humanity that we would say that, Jesus, what you've done isn't sufficient, and I'm going to add stuff as, as if somehow I can add to what Jesus has done. That's crazy, isn't it? So write this down. We need to strongly reject, we really need to strongly reject anything that teaches salvation by grace through faith plus anything else, whatever that anything else might be. And for different people, it's different things. For these folks, it was the Jewish law. For other people, it's different things. Going to church. Might be, it might be salvation through faith in Jesus plus good works or plus going to church or plus baptism or plus communion or plus giving to charity or plus going, uh, uh, giving to church or plus speaking in tongues or whatever it might be. Once we start adding stuff in addition to simple faith in Jesus, we've got it wrong. Anything that adds to simple faith in Christ is wrong and we need to totally and utterly reject it. We should do good things. We should give to charity. We should give to church. We should read our Bibles. We should uh, come and worship. We should take communion together. We should get baptized. These are, all, these are all good things. We should help people. We should do lots of good stuff. That's fantastic. But we should do those things in a response to what Jesus has done for us. So we look at what God has done. And we've seen this morning as we've taken bread and wine 
as a reminder. There's nothing sacred about this bread or, or juice. It's just bread and juice. But it's a picture that helps us remember what Jesus did on the cross. And as we remember what Jesus has done on the cross, that should motivate us and spur us on to live good lives, to love God and to love others. And so we, we live good lives in response to what Jesus has done, not living good lives in order to try and earn God's love, in order to, in order to try and earn God's favor. We can't. We earn God's favor simply by saying, I can't earn God's favor and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus in, instead. So having utterly rejected the idea that Christians, whether they're Jewish or Gentiles, need to keep the Jewish law to be saved, James then writes a letter to the Gentile churches giving them some advice. And it is just advice. It's important that we understand this. Many of the churches had a mixture of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in them. And the Jewish Christians were so used to living by the law. This was so utterly ingrained in them. It was their culture. And it was a, it was a biblical culture because God had given the law. The law isn't wrong. God had given it. So they were so used to this. So James doesn't want the Gentile Christians with the freedom they had to live totally as they wanted. He doesn't want their freedom to be a problem for the Jewish Christians. He doesn't want their freedom to offend or stumble the Jewish Christians. So in his letter, he wrote these words. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. No, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a prohibition. It's just, he says, you'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So what is all this about? Why does he say this? Why does he pick on these few things? Well, let's be clear that he's not saying that the Gentile Christians had to do these things. They had to uh, not eat food sacrificed to idols. They had to avoid um, blood and so on like that. He's not saying that they had to do these things to be saved. He's already made it utterly clear that salvation is by grace through faith. If the Gentile Christians did these things around Jewish Christians, what was likely to happen was that they would offend the Jews. The Jewish Christians were so steeped in the law, for them, if they saw these things happening, they're going to be offended by it. Because not doing these things was so deeply ingrained in them. And in all these cities where churches have been formed with both Gentiles and Jews, the, the, the Gentiles in general would know because the, the, the synagogues were there where the Jews met and it would be preached every week from, from the, the book of the law would be preached. So the Gentiles would know what the Jews stood for. They would know the things that would offend the Jews. And even more from their social contact with Jews, they, were, they would know that there were certain things over which Jews had a really strong conscience. They wouldn't eat food that had been offered to idols because the Bible says idolatry is turning away from God and instead of worshipping the Creator, it's worshipping created things. And so they knew that, that the Gentiles knew that Jews would not eat food offered to idols. Their list of relationships within marriage within which marriage was forbidden, was much more detailed, much broader than your average Gentile culture. And so any uh, relationship within those kind of confines was sexual immorality to the Jews. And so Paul says, avoid sexual immorality. He's not talking about in general, although, of course, all Christians should avoid sexual immorality, sexual immorality in general. What he's talking about here is avoiding these forbidden relationships for the Jew. And they would not eat the meat of animals that have been strangled or consume blood in any form, because in the blood was the life, that was what they were taught. Gentile Christians couldn't be expected to have a conscience about these things. They hadn't grown up in that culture, and they didn't have to obey them. This was the Jewish law. But if Gentile believers didn't respect the consciences of their fellow Jewish believers, 
it would make church life really difficult. Imagine if this half of the room are Jews who've been converted and this half are Christians that have been converted and there's stuff over here that, 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 that you guys are doing that is deeply culturally offensive to this half of the room. It's not going to make church life very easy, is it? And we're not going to be able to go out and preach the gospel very easily because we're, we're not talking to each other and we can't hang out together and we can't spend time together. There are two groups of Christians, one of which with a clear conscience couldn't get on with the other group. And it would do spiritual harm, to, particularly to the Jewish believers. So James then was asking Gentile believers, when necessary, to forego their freedom in these things out of respect for the conscience of others and for the sake of the gospel's reputation and spread. He didn't want anything to hinder the gospel. So James was asking the Gentile Christians not to behave in a way that was likely to offend fellow Christians who had a Jewish background because of their Jewish upbringing, their Jewish culture. But he wasn't saying that Gentile Christians, or Jewish Christians for that matter, had to avoid these things in order to be saved. And he wasn't saying that we as Christians, 2,000 years later, can't eat certain foods. All he was asking was that Gentile Christians were being careful in how they lived when they were spending time with Jews so that they wouldn't offend Jewish Christians and wouldn't offend people in general. They don't, Paul, Peter and these guys are trying to get away from anything that would be a, a barrier for the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says exactly the same thing when he writes in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 and in Romans 14, if you want to look at those in your own time. As Christians, we are totally and utterly free from rules and regulations. Our relationship with God, our salvation, being saved, is solely based in faith on Jesus. It's not based on what we do. But having been saved by God's amazing grace, we should then want to live out the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love others. That is the Christian life. Loving God and loving others. And so if I'm to love God and others, then I must try not to behave in a way that offends fellow Christians. In this context, it was offending Jews. We're not likely to face that situation in our culture today. But there may be other ways in which my behavior might offend another Christian, their conscience. So if I'm, if I'm, loving, my, if I'm loving God and I'm, and I'm loving my fellow Christian, and I've got to make sure I don't behave in a way that offends my fellow Christian, and, and in the process... Uh, hindering the spread of the gospel. So write this down. Instead, we need to act in love towards my fellow Christians so that they're not offended, so that we can spread the good news. It's all about spreading the gospel, making sure that there is nothing which hinders the spread of the good news. And we need to act in love towards each other so that we're not offending one another. Now, we're not in a situation in this church where half the people are brand new converts from Judaism. But we might find ourselves today in our culture alongside a fellow Christian who has been saved but struggles perhaps with an addiction to alcohol. And for them, alcohol is just so destructive and ruined their lives and their family lives. And they've become a Christian and they don't want anything more to do with that. Now, we are free to drink alcohol. The Bible says we're free to drink and eat anything. But if in drinking in front of this, this friend of mine, if I offend them, if I cause them to stumble, if I'm causing them problems, then out of love for God and love for them, I'm going to hold off on my freedom to make sure they're not offended. This is, what Paul is, this is what Peter is teaching and James are teaching here. So we need to examine our lives and try to ensure that our behavior won't offend our fellow Christians or even offend non-Christians that we're mixing with. And there may be other situations that you will come across or you can think of. Alcohol is perhaps an obvious one, but there may be other situations where we have a complete freedom in Christ, but we need to be careful that we don't cause unnecessary offense. Paul wrote these words in Romans 14:21. He said, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine, or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So we're free to eat meat and drink wine and whatever, but we don't do it if it's going to cause our brother to fall. Christian unity and the spread of the good news about Jesus is more important 
than my freedom to eat or drink whatever I want. We are free from having to keep certain rules and regulations in order to be saved. It's trusting in Jesus that does that. Isn't that fantastic? And as a man, I am so forever grateful that Christian men don't need to be circumcised. I'm sure all men would say amen to that. Thank goodness when we get saved, we don't have to be circumcised. That's a good thing. But having been saved by God's grace, God wants me now to choose to live for him, to love him with all my heart, to do the things that please him. And that includes asking ourselves, will my, will my behavior help spread the good news about Jesus? Will my behavior strengthen and encourage my Christian brother or sister? We're saved by God's grace through simple faith in what Jesus has done. And praise God for that. And we must reject anything that teaches anything contrary to that. But if we've been saved, then we need to devote ourselves to living for God in response to his amazing grace to us. And part of living for God means loving our Christian brothers and sisters, not doing anything that will cause them to struggle in their walk with God. So that together, we can go about this great and glorious task of telling others about Jesus, of spreading the good news so that others might be saved from eternal separation and punishment. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ, that we are free from rules and regulations, free simply to put our faith and trust in Jesus. We praise you for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus. Thank you that it's simply in the blood of Christ that we put our faith in his death, in his resurrection. We praise you for that. Thank you, Father. Give us strength to resist uh, when wrong teaching comes and teaches us to do different things. But help us also, Father, as we consider your great love for us, as we, as we focus on how much you love us, and as we thought this morning, as we've taken communion together, of your, your amazing love, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We thank you for the good news. And in response to that good news, Father, we want to live for you. We want to live this day, this week, in a way that honors you and glorifies you. We want to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, all of our strength, all of our soul and heart. And we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so help us to love you and to love others, to live the way that you would have us to live, not to earn your favor, but in response to your favor, so that together we might spread the good news, so that others might come into the, the fantastic goodness of your love as we have received it. Bless us, we pray. We praise you this morning. We worship you together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to respond to what, we're, what we've heard, um, this wonderful news about this gospel that we can, uh, that we can come to know God through Jesus Christ, that uh, there's nothing